Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, playwright and novelist Jeff Jackson returns to the show to talk about his latest novel, Destroy All Monsters. Jeff Jackson is the author of the cult classic novel Mira Kapora, a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and also we've spoken about it on the previous Little Atoms. Six of his plays have been produced by the Obie Award-winning Collapsible Giraffe Theatre Company in New York City, and Jeff's latest novel, Destroy All Monsters, we're going to talk about today. Jeff, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thanks, it's great to be back on. How would you describe this book, Destroy All Monsters? Well, the publisher is describing it as the last rock novel, and uh, it is a story about an epidemic of violence sweeping across the country, mostly focusing on small underground clubs and musicians being shot on stage while they're performing. That's sort of the uh, preamble for the book, and then the book settles in the one town, a small town of Arcadia, and sort of looks at the repercussions of this epidemic and how they play out in that community, specifically around uh, a group of musicians who are trying to decide whether or not they should play a tribute concert for their friend who was shot and killed, and also about the girlfriend of this musician who was shot and killed and her sort of role in all of this. And the book also, like a classic vinyl single or like a cassette, has, uh, has both a side A and a side B. So you read side A, and then you flip it over and upside down, and then you read the B side. So this idea of the last rock novel, which of course inevitably suggests that there are other rock novels, so I guess I wanted to talk about what exactly is a rock novel. Well, it's not exactly the most uh, story genre, <laughs> um, <laughs> for, for sure. There are, but there are novels, you know, that are focused on sort of rock and roll as their subject matter. Um, Don DeLillo's Great Jones Street being one of the really good examples, but um, the writer Dana Spiota has written, I would say, probably two of them, both Eat the Document and Stone Arabia being uh, good examples of that. Um, so it's novels that sort of circulate around rock and roll as their as their subject matter. But it's interesting because there have been a lot of books, a lot of nonfiction books, memoirs, oral histories around um, rock and roll and around music that are just fantastic. But the idea of novels about rock and roll, they're not that many good ones, at least that I know of. And this is not just a book that's about rock and roll in terms of the fact that it features people that happen to be in bands. It's also, I mean, the very subject matter makes it into some sort of punk rock novel, I'd suggest. Yeah, yeah, that's true, too. I mean, and it's also looking at 
these sort of this sort of epidemic of violence, it's using music as a lens to sort of look at some larger issues around sort of culture in general, around sort of like, are we living through the death of culture? Are we, you know, what is it, what happens in a culture where there's so much information overload that it's hard to tell the signal from the noise? What does it mean to put stakes into your art and create something that feels like it has has stakes when it feels like even music by the most popular musicians gets sort of uh, swallowed up by the culture and disappeared so quickly. Indeed, there's two ideas here. So, I mean, Zini, the um, the main character, says at one point, you know, something along the lines of, everybody's always asking me to join their band or saying I should start a band. It feels like everybody's got a band or everybody's an artist. Obviously, the internet has made it a lot easier on the one hand for people both, like myself, obviously, for one, you know to to make art and disseminate it but at the same time we have this idea that you know something like spotify means that music itself it's just there in the palm of your hand and there's no real effort into being interested in it anymore yeah yeah i mean i had um recently i was um at this talk that was given by will oldham who go who performs under the name bonnie prince billy and mm-hmm. used to perform under the name palace music and he was talking about how he has written a lot of new songs and he has no plans to record them and he said that the reason for that is he feels that the internet and Spotify and things like streaming mean that people don't pay attention and don't listen to music with the same attention that they used to. And he really feels like the contract between the listener and the musician has been broken. And I'm not sure I'd go that far, but it was a really interesting and sort of stark thing to hear him talking about that and how, you know, in a lot of senses, the democratization of art has been great and technology has allowed so many things that had been buried to be disseminated and has allowed so many people who weren't able to have a voice to have a voice. But it has also flattened things out and in some cases, a sort of casualness of things like Spotify has left artists like Will Oldham wondering what place his music even has in this new landscape. Let's go back to the idea of the uh, the A and B side of the book. Then, I mean, you pretty much explained where that idea comes from. You know, this is a this is a rock novel, so it you know it parallels the idea of a, you know a vinyl album with an A and a B side. How do the two sides relate to each other? Well, they they relate to each other in a couple of ways. In one way, the B side is dramatizing some events that are in the that you've read about in the A side, but you haven't actually seen dramatized. So, in some way, it's sort of deepening the story of the A side. But in another way, it's also complicating it because I didn't want the B side just to be sort of sort of a Rashomon experience where you're hearing the same story just told from a different point of view. I really wanted it to do something different for the reader. So the fates of several characters are reversed. And in fact, the genders of several characters are flipped. And if you try and line up the stories, like they just don't quite line up. So almost like a cassette, it's almost sort of erasing and rewriting. The sides are erasing and rewriting each other. I also wanted to include in the B side some key scenes that aren't in side A. So, for instance, the characters in side B have an encounter of who they think is one of the killers and sort of chase him down. And there's also a scene of a funeral, something that's missing from side A as well. So I wanted to include some elements, some key scenes and moments that sort of weren't in side A and then to really play around almost side B is in some ways an alternate reality of, uh, of side A. 
Let's talk about that idea, that central idea of the the bands are being, and certainly the focus of the side A, My Dark Ages, the um, the part set in Arcadia. Obviously, the events are happening around the country, but it's focused on this one town. Local bands are being gunned down by, and not a person, but just random people, basically a collection yeah. of people who seem not necessarily connected. It's a violent image. Where did it come from? Well, the image came, I mean, it's odd because the image, my notes for this book, I didn't start writing it until about probably uh, seven years ago, six or seven years ago, but my notes for it go back about 10 or 12 years ago. And so I was just sort of jotting down in the notebook this sort of image of, I think I had been at a club the, the previous night seeing a band and just this image of a band being shot on stage. And so at the time, that image seemed very surreal. And unfortunately, sort of history has caught up to that image. I mean, this was years before the Bataclan shooting or anything like that. And the story sort of grew out of that image and thinking about it, like what if it was less of an isolated image and more of more of an epidemic and more of something was unconnected killers, but I mean, the way sort of mass shootings have happened in the U.S. where it used to happen in post offices, it's been happening a lot in schools. It's just sort of, it's terrible. It's not, it's the people themselves aren't connected, but these events sort of keep transpiring. A lot of it came out of that one image from 12 years ago and that sort of that slowly generated the entire novel and of course i mean it's we all know that books take a long time to write and a long time to actually get published once they've written but it does seem uh, at once timeless but also because i think there's lots of aspects of the way it's written that, that make the book seem you know set in a sort of like any contemporary time but at the same time seems like ripped right out of the pages because these things do seem to be accelerating these shootings as you said obviously like with something like the Bataclan and um, you know there's been attacks on music venues in the UK as well in Manchester last year mm, right. I mean obviously a lot of work a lot of years went into it but did it feel like as this book was coming towards publication that I don't know did you have any reservations? I mean, I definitely, it definitely took me aback, uh, for sure, because like I said, when I started, it was really this heightened, surreal way of sort of looking at violence in music. And as reality has like very quickly caught up to the book, it's been really, um, it's been really unnerving. It's been really unnerving. And I definitely did sit with the book for a while to see like, is there anything that needs to be changed? And I didn't feel that that was the case. I mean, I did feel like the book is very much, I mean, one, it's it's still, I think, a heightened sort of reality. It's not meant to be a realist novel. But it's also a book that's very much, you know, on the side of the victims and looking at sort of what happens to them in the aftermath, what happens to the people in the sort of aftermath of these of these sort of violent, terrible events. But it was it, it was an experience I've never had before where, it really felt like current events were radically reshaping the context around which this book was going to be read. And it was a very different context than what I had written it in. No, indeed. And it goes from, you know, being a book that has this very specific central image that thematically, and we'll talk about other ways in which that's the case later on, but like, it's, you know, this central image of people almost taking upon themselves, you know, criticism of bands and, you know, an extreme form of criticism. And, actually widens it out to the you know the escalating gun violence in american society yeah yeah no it certainly it certainly does it certainly does touch on that i mean america's always been sort of a violent country and that's sort of always been 
that's always been on my mind and was on my mind when I was writing this, but it does feel like the book is now sort of addressing those escalations of violence here in the U.S. much more sort of directly than it was my initial, you know, my intention to do, which has been interesting. I mean, I think it's an interesting situation in the world we live in right now for writers of all stripes. It, I imagine a lot of people find themselves in a situation where history is just moving so quickly now that even, you know, trying to stay a few steps ahead or just sinking into your imagination, you might find that reality is reshaping um, how it's perceived by readers. The book is, well, part of the one side of the book, the the side A, is dedicated to the memory of uh, a musician called Johnny Ace, who I must admit I was not familiar with until until I read the book. Tell me why, who he was. Yeah, so Johnny Ace is is not super well-known. He was one of the really early uh, rock singers in the 50s, sort of as R&B, rhythm and blues, were sort of shading into rock and roll. He was this sort of early rock and roll crooner, and he was very young and had a very sort of meteoric rise to success. And um, he recorded this song, Pledging My Love, this really sort of ghostly haunting rock ballad, and then performed a show shortly afterwards on Christmas Eve and was induced, uh, tempted into playing a game of Russian roulette after the show and lost the game and, uh, and killed himself in this game of Russian roulette. And after that, his song, Pledging My Love, which he had just recorded, went to number one right away on the charts and stayed there for a long time. And it's rumored to be a haunted song. It's rumored that people who cover that song, bad things happen to them. In fact, it was the very last song that Elvis ever recorded. And to me, he's sort of like the first example of this idea, this myth in rock and roll of dying young and sort of, immort- you know, tying that into to a form of sort of immortality. And also sort of some of the violence sort of inherent in, uh, in some of the myths around rock and roll. And indeed, that is, you know, an enduring myth still. I mean, you know, people... I mean, obviously, you know, sometimes people in rock and roll die in sort of heightened ways, but, you know, everybody dies and, you know, you don't see people extolling the virtues of some accountant who died when there was 29 or something. It does seem to be a a poisonous myth in some ways, this idea, both, you know, the idea that rock stars that die are sort of like, you know, entombed in legend by doing so, but also the idea then that their work takes on a life of its own after they've died. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that romance is still really, really strong. And I mean, it's interesting in that um, early readers of the book, one of the local musicians who dies, a lot of early readers just assumed that his music was like really wonderful and must have been great when that is, you know, the book like really works to undercut that, that that may not be the case, that a romance springs up around this guy just because he dies and around his music and suddenly there's this meaning attached to it that maybe it doesn't deserve. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jeff Jackson. We're talking about his latest novel, Destroy All Monsters. And Jeff, we haven't really touched on the, the characters in the novel yet, so I want to spend a little time talking about Zini, first of all. Yes. So she is um she's the girlfriend of this character, uh, Sean, who's a singer and performer and who dies early on in the book. It's one of the casualties of the epidemic. And she's someone who's really invested in music, who's really passionate about it, and who finds herself sort of, finds the meaning in music sort of being eroded for her, finds that she's not taking the same pleasure in it that she used to, finding that she doesn't have the same connection to it that she used to. She's someone that worries that as the epidemic sort of went on, that she was able to see, to understand what was motivating some of these killers and why they were doing what they were doing, that she sees maybe some sort of pattern. She's also someone who maybe is a very talented person herself and who struggles with whether or not she should be sharing that and whether by doing that she's just adding more noise to the world. And then there's this group of men who are in various bands, local bands in um, in Arcadia, the town, um, they rather ironically named Arcadia, I should say, but we'll um, we'll get onto that in a minute. You've mentioned Sean, who features towards the beginning of the book, and then he's killed. And there's Florian, and there's Eddie in one part, Edie in the other part. Tell us something about this group of people and their world. Yeah, so um, so Florian and is in this band. He was someone who had been best friends with Sean growing up. They'd sort of gone their separate ways and each sort of been in different bands. And Florian's someone who's also sort of a true believer in music and someone who's maybe sort of struggling still to find his voice and find his way. And it's sort of, it's not clear in the novel whether how much that's happening for him or how much it's not happening for him. But, you know, they're part of this small scene. And I think one thing I've noticed in a lot of, in a lot of sort of towns sort of that aren't, you know, that aren't New York, that aren't London, that aren't some major, major city, that, that these, you know, these really interesting sort of insular music scenes or literary scenes or art scenes can pop up. And the bands don't necessarily become super successful, but it's a very interesting um, and powerful creative outlet for the people that are involved in these scenes. And sometimes very interesting stuff does come out of it, but it's something that I think is, um, I think the fact in like these sort of, especially the city of Arcadia, sort of this post-industrial city, I think 
those sort of environments tend to incubate really strong local scenes while at the same time also making people feel like that there's not a real future to them. And sort of both of those things happen at the same time. And obviously in the UK we have, you know, localised music scenes, towns, be it London, Manchester, Liverpool, Glasgow, that, you know, that become famous for certain movements of music but it's a very small place here the thing that's obviously striking about america is the distance and it's interesting to compare as you said obviously the you know the major cities but even college towns which you know obviously touring bands go to but you know in a town like arcadia we are literally talking about a local music scene uh, that could be quite vibrant, but these bands are not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah, there's no place to go. And I think that's one of the, I mean, one of the issues that I've started to notice is that, I mean, there's just, there's not that much money in touring for bands unless they're already at a sort of certain level of success. I mean, it used to be that, Oh, you, you know, you couldn't make money off of your records anymore, but you could make money off of touring, and you could sell the you could sell the music on the road. And now it's becoming the case where, like, touring, or you know, a lot of bands that I see are like just hoping to break even from it, unless unless they've already reached a certain level of success. And so I think the scenes uh, here in the U.S. are, in a certain way, becoming even more localized because there isn't that sort of financial incentive to sort of get out of town. So it's interesting in a certain way because of that, I wonder if actually down the line sort of more interesting music will be incubated because there isn't that, it isn't being sort of immediately commercialized. So what's your connection to this? You're in Charlotte right now, North Carolina, which is one of those college towns, isn't it? One of that sort of triangle of North Carolina, like Durham and... Yeah, it's 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 near it's near ish there. I mean, it's a larger city than than that. So it's it's an odd scene in that there is there are colleges here. There's a little bit of that. There's also I mean, there is a pretty good uh, there is a pretty good music scene here. I uh, I mean, I spent 13 years in New York too, sort of in and out of various music scenes and also doing theater, which was not all that different, I think, from being part of a music scene, sort of seeing this sort of underground theater world and how, how sort of different scenes operated in that way. So my connection to all that is just having always been sort of interested in music, always interested in these different scenes, and if not always taking part of them, sort of being on the edges of them and taking note, you know, taking note of sort of how they operated and being being interested in that it's an interesting microcosm and i want to sort of widen that out to the you know the i guess the general miller of the book and an arcadia and as i read it i was struck that you know in the way they talk about in the films nowadays mira corpora could be set in the same universe it seems to be concerned with the same sort of you know there's there's part of mira corpora that's concerned with a you know a lost tape and a and a band and but also there are scenes in this book that are set out in the woods around Arcadia where there is huge homeless encampments and and I want to talk about what it is about that you know Arcadia is one as you said one of these post-industrial towns there's a vibrant music scene but everything else is shut basically all the you know all the buildings are shuttered even the clubs that they're playing in are are basically derelict buildings what is it about that sort of world that appeals to you to write about? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I think there's something about that sort of slightly... Well, I mean, one, I actually mean, I grew up in Aruba, actually, my earliest years on the island of Aruba. And so I grew up in this odd landscape where there were these ruins of a hospital and ruins of World War II fortifications and 
me and my friends, our parents would like let us out to like roam around all this sort of like industrial wreckage for hours at a time before we would be called back home. So there's something in one sense that's just very familiar about these landscapes to me. But there's also something about the world that we inhabit right now. I mean, there's something about the fact, I think maybe that there's not a lot of sort of parents and authority figures in the books. There's something about the fact that the world is sort of coming apart at the hinges in these books that to me feels very much like what's in the air of, of the world we inhabit right now. That, you know, in a lot of cases, we're living in a world where our so-called leaders are, you know, behave like infants. And the apocalyptic has always been part, I think, of the human imagination since day one. But we're, you know, scientifically facing some situations that may be, you know, dire beyond what's been in our recorded history in the past. So maybe in some ways, these environments are a way to dramatize that without having to talk about it. Maybe it's a way to sort of make the heighten the darkness a little bit in order to make it uh, more visible. Indeed, you, you mentioned the, the lack of parent figures, and in, that's in both books. And um, in this one, Florian is is visited at one point when he's about to uh, perform the um, the tribute concert by his estranged father, who actually in the book seems entirely reasonable. Yeah, no, he does. He is reasonable, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and like, you know, like Florian is just disturbed and, and, and not in any way interested in, in reconciling. Yeah, no, no, that's true. I mean, definitely in the book. And also in the B-side, there's sort of the Aunt Mary figure who is, it was eccentric, but maybe also more reasonable than she appears to the characters who are sort of angry at her. So, yeah, so in that sense, like, it's, you know, it's complicated a little bit by the fact that, you know, Florian's father, in a lot of ways, does have his best interests at heart, but there's also been so much damage in the relationship at that point that Florian just can't see it. And is sort of determined to follow his own path, despite maybe some good advice to the contrary. I want to talk about the appearance of deer in the novel. All the way through the novel, there are both images and actual deer when they're out in the woods and then the novel that my dark ages culminates with a a deer hunt a cull um which parallels i guess the the cull of musicians that's been carrying on throughout the book yeah so i mean both deer and birds are really important to both books part of it is like i was looking for another sort of space for the book outside sort of the insular world of rock clubs and practice spaces and, you know, putting stuff in nature. I mean, another thing you sort of alluded to that it had a sort of timeless feel, and I was really glad uh, when Don DeLillo read the book, one of the things he mentioned is that it had the feel to him almost of an ancient folktale. And one of the things I was going for was trying to have something that was dealing with some modern experiences and feelings, but also that had these sort of ritualistic and sort of mythic underpinning to it. And that's sort of where the deer and the birds come in, for sure. You know, I, I lived uh, I lived in a town near this nature preserve where when, um, and there would be a lot of deer sort of in our neighborhood that you'd see every now and again. And when the population would get too large, there would be these calls. And it was really, it's really kind of horrific. Uh, it's a real sort of vivid memory for me when I, when I had lived in New Jersey um, after I had lived in Aruba. You know, the explanation was that it was important for the health of the deer herd that you had to cull the herd. But, you know, I really, I wonder about that. I think there's been, I think there's been a lot of sort of pushback to that sort of theory over the years. But it's something that the book is sort of wrestling with. Like, what does this mean? Is this something healthy? Is this something just, you know, is this just violence, just plain horrific? You know, what does it mean to sort of destroy these beautiful creatures like these deer and what you know what is the what is the cost of that 
Just one more thing from me there, Lilo. I'll get you to read a little bit of the book, if you would. We talked earlier about how the real world had caught up with the book as you were writing it and as it came close towards publication. And now it is out. What has the reaction been? Well, the reaction, I was sort of bracing myself for a lot of people only to read it through the lens of sort of gun violence and epidemics of gun violence, especially here in the U.S., and I've been very pleasantly surprised that people have had a have had a much more sort of nuanced view of the book, and have sort of um, has sort of taken you know the gun violence is just one part of many facets of the book, and that's been really that's been really that's been really nice. It's been really gratifying because there is there's a lot there are a lot of different aspects to the book, both on the A side and the B side, and. It's been nice that people have been connecting with the plot. I've heard a lot of people saying that they read it in, you know, one or two sittings and that they had a real sort of emotional connection with the characters as well, that the conceptual stuff is landing. But the main thing that people are focusing on, which I'm happy about, you know, is the propulsiveness of the story and sort of the the emotional life of the characters and how they interact. So could I get you to uh, to read us a bit? Okay, so I'm going to read from uh, side A. This is the beginning of part one, which is called The Epidemic. And this is a section that is narrated by the character of Zini. It was as if I knew it was going to happen. A dull feeling of dread had been gathering. The signs were getting harder to ignore. At the end of my street, I discovered a drum kit at the bottom of an overgrown ravine. Piece by piece, somebody had hurled it down the street, the steep precipice, and abandoned it there. A bass drum snare and cymbals were scattered in the shallow stream bed, surrounded by tangled vines, rocks, and fallen branches, suddenly rerouting the flow of the rippling water. My first thought wasn't to marvel at the strange sight, but to wonder why the rest of the band's equipment was missing. I told my boyfriend Sean about it, but he didn't see any deeper significance. Zini, he said, is probably some angry kid who didn't like his birthday present. It looked expensive, I said, like a set of pro my play. Something about this image made Sean laugh. Zini, he said. Drummers are practically feral. The best ones aren't even housebroken. Maybe that's just the guy's new practice space. I tried to shake it off, but I kept thinking about how much it changed in Arcadia since I'd met Sean. Over the past three years, the economy tanked and the wheelchair factory shut down. The Carmelite rifles moved away to cash in on their success, and it wasn't long before several of the city's best musicians followed their lead, betting their fortunes lay elsewhere. The scene's heyday faded like a dull mirage. Nobody was surprised when Arcadia's only record store closed its doors. Outside the broken ear, the owner left piles of records, cassettes, and compact discs free for the taking. Weeks after the locks were changed and the windows covered with construction permits, the stacks remained untouched, blackening in the weather. The clubs were still doing business, but there wasn't much excitement now around the shows. Even longtime landmarks like Echo Echo lost some of their allure. The theater downtown rarely booked homegrown acts, and it was easy to understand why. Most of the local musicians had little ambition, low standards, less taste. The bands that used to stun audiences and rampage across the stage, Deconic Parkway, Jerusalem Crickets, the Forty Thieves, had all broken up. Their members branched off in dozens of musical directions, forming projects that felt increasingly detached from their origins, part of a family tree of mediocrity. Nobody in the scene played for any stakes. People still came together in the night to get drunk and share gossip and hook up, but the music meant less and less. I was collecting music more than ever on my computer, but I rarely listened to it. I realized I was getting more pleasure from amassing the files than actually playing them. I'd spend hours obsessively accumulating an artist's entire discography, then promptly forget about it for months. Whenever I managed to spin my newly acquired songs, they rarely came across as more than modest diversions. It was hard to make myself believe any of it mattered. More troublingly, 
Even my favorite music was barely able to hold me in its sway. One afternoon, I carried my hard drive full of songs through the street to the ravine. I let the plastic device drop and watched it careen down the weed-choked embankment and crash into the creek below. The battered black rectangle rested at the bottom of the stream, surrounded by the rusted drum kit, whose punctured snare drum was now a nest for a family of sparrows. Several open red throats peeked from the spiral of dried grass and bent twigs, waiting to be fed. That night, I dreamed about a group of boys emerging out of the darkness, following a path through the woods, one after the other. The boy of the shaved skull, the boy with the scraggly beard, the boy with a black overcoat. Each held an instrument, bone flute, rattling gourd, sticks strung with a single metallic wire. There was a strange determination to their lurching steps as if they were in a trance. As they came closer, it became clear they were covered in mud, their clothes and faces caked with the stuff. Or rather, it was blood, a wet redness that refused to shimmer in the dim light. It obscured everything except the boys' lidless stares. Their eyes were white orbs, the exact shape of the absent moon. So I've been talking to Jeff Jackson. We've been talking about his book, Destroy All Monsters, which is out now in the US from FSG Originals. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Oh, thanks. Uh, It's been a pleasure to be on the show, as always. Thanks, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.